right fielder Jermaine Dye plays very deep. They're trying to cut off the extra base hit, but anything in front of Dye probably falls in, and he's playing right near the right field line. Grissom is a little bit over in right center, and Andrew Jones way off the left field line. Understandably, they don't think the Yanks can pull Wollers. It'll be a 2-2. Swung on and hit in the air to deep left. Jones back toward the track at the wall. It is gone. A three-run home run. And the Yankees have tied the game. Jimmy Lairitz did pull Wollers. And he hit a three-run home run over the left field fence. And the gutty, gritty Yankees have come all the way back. Six-nothing down to tie the game at six. Do you believe that? Uh, that's pretty amazing. Larris hit the most dramatic home run last year, the one that won it in the 15th inning in game two in the division series. And this one, it reminded me a lot of the Pat Kelly home run in Toronto. It kept going down the line, and it finally cleared the fence over the leaping tribe Jones. And the amazing thing, John, Wallers hung a breaking ball. Hung a breaking ball. And they say, I mean, this is part of baseball lore. Go with your fastball. You can't hang a fastball. He hung a breaking ball in Lairitz's eyes. Jones climbed the wall, but it was just over the wall. An ultra-dramatic three-run home run by a guy who's only in the game because the Yankees pinch it for Girardi, something they never do. They needed a three-run home run at the time. So Lairitz is in the game, and he hoists a three-run home run to deep left. It was pulled to the line. That's the only ball he could hit and pull, a hanging breaking ball. He pulled it. Andrew Jones, do you see him climb that wall? I mean, he even got close to it. A dramatic three-run home run to tie the game at six. How do you like your New York Yankees? All right, cool. So um, Jim Leritz is a former Major League Baseball player. His career spanned 11 years across various teams. With the Yankees, Leritz was a member of the 96 and 99 World Series Championships. And I'm excited to say today we have him on the show. Jim, thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Awesome, man. So, um, you know, tell me, uh, w- w- what have you been up to these days? How was 2020 for you? <laughs> well, obviously a little bit different than usual because normally during the baseball season, I'm doing 30 to 40 appearances for the Yankees at Yankee Stadium with the fans and the suites and you know, some of those type of things. And, of course, we didn't have the opportunity to do any of that this year. Um, so it was a little bit change the pace for me. I had to figure out a few more things to do as far as uh, how to generate income through different types of businesses that, you know, that I I work with. So Mm -hmm. it was just a little bit different. Um, But, you know, just it's one of those things that, you know, we we get thrown a curveball, we kind of just make the adjustment to it. And uh, we've been very fortunate that most of our family and, you know, I should say all of our family have been safe from COVID. Yeah. you know, we, we haven't been too restricted as far as, you know, our travel goes and some of the things that we've been able to do as far as at least getting out a little bit. So uh, overall, COVID has been tough because of what it's done to the economy, what mm-hmm. it's done to, you know, to the area, especially out here in California. Uh, but at the same time, we've been blessed to be able to, uh, to stay healthy through most of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were doing, uh, you're still doing appearances for the Yankees? Yeah, during the baseball season, I do two things in New York. I work for a charity called Pink Tie, hmm. which we raise money for all different charities and foundations that need financial help. 
And so I usually play in about 30 to 45 golf tournaments. And I attend anywhere from 20 to 35 more dinners as far as just raising money for these different charities and foundations uh, on behalf of Pink Tie. And then during at night, I usually go over to Yankee Stadium and I'll make appearances up in the suites, sign autographs for their corporate sponsors and for their suite, you know, their suite sponsors. So it keeps me pretty busy. It usually keeps me in New York most of the summer. Um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, so we couldn't do that this year, but uh, we're keeping our fingers crossed and that next year that we're back to normal. Yeah. Um, do they, uh, any plans as to next season that, the league is coming up with for you know around to to kind of build around COVID or well I think so I think you know especially with football and and, and basketball and hockey now starting they're going to start putting some fans in the stands and by March hopefully with the vaccine and everything else that we got in place that we'll kind of be back to a new normal uh, once April comes around the baseball season starts I'm hoping that you know we'll, we'll be back to a regular capacity as far as you know the fans and the stands go because it'll be a lot safer by then. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, that's that's what we're all hoping for. So, um, so you know, going back, you know, you have you've had quite a career. You have two World Series rings with the with the Yankees, and um, you know, what was that like? You know, going back to that time, you know, like with the '96 team. You know, prior to that, uh, the Yankees hadn't won a World Series since 1978. So. Going into that year, were you guys kind of seen as the underdogs, or? Yeah, yeah. I don't think we were expected to, to win uh, even our division, much less the World Series. And I think, uh, you know, it was an interesting situation with Joe Torre coming on after replacing Buck Showalter, uh, and uh, for the first time getting at least to the wild card playoff, even though we didn't win that. Um, but. You know, we got that far, and then for Joe Torre to take over, I don't think anybody knew what to expect. I mean, the New York Post said, "Who is Joe?" Uh, right. They, I don't think I don't think they expected us to do what we did as far as uh, you know, like I said, win the World Series. But I think the most for me, the most the the most important thing was just after being with the Yankees for six years, I was when Don Mattingly retired, I became the longest tenured Yankee on that team. Right. It was kind of nice because going from that 1990 to 91 team that was losing 92, 93 games uh, to being able to get to the playoffs for the first time in 95 and then, you know, 96 uh, have the season that we did. It was, it was pretty special to be the senior leader of that team, uh, you know, and, and be part of that. And again, just, knowing starting off in the minor leagues with the Yankees for four years and then the first seven years in the big leagues to be a part of that team, to be a part of that transition of starting the dynasty. Uh, it was, it was pretty special to be a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And you know, you were well known in the nineties, man. I mean, you know, when the Yankees were on top, I mean, you know, the whole team, all of you were, were like, seemed like you guys were like on top of the world and you, yeah, when you look at when you look at those teams and you look at you know the the, the dynasty that started after '96. I mean, one of the things I really hope we're getting back to baseball this year in normalcy, so we can celebrate the 20th anniversary of that team. Yeah. would be nice. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, for me, the biggest thing was uh, you know this this was an organization that you know Mr. Steinbrenner took a lot of pride in, uh, and basically he told us when he came in and 
that, you know, after he came off suspension in 92, that whatever we needed, he would go get and we better win. And, um, you know, he slowly, Buck Showalter and Gene Michael built that team. And, you know, unfortunately, Buck was not able to get us over the hump in 95. And Mr. Mr. Steinbrenner was not too happy with that. And, 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 you know, even after a good season and getting to the playoffs for the first time, he still fired Buck. Uh, when Joe came in, uh, and then we, you know, we get at least to the World Series, but the first two games, we embarrass ourselves to a point where George is telling him, listen, Showalter could have got me this far. If you don't win this thing, your, your, your job is on the line. <laughs> and, you know, sure enough, you know, Joe tells the story about, well, I told George, don't worry, we'll go down to Atlanta, we'll sweep him, and we'll come back and win it here. I think he said that tongue in cheek, but unfortunately, fortunately for him, it came true. Um, but I really think that the importance of that 96 home run that I hit as far as changing the momentum, but then also the 96 team winning was the fact that when they lost like they did, in, if we would have lost in 96, if they would have lost like they did again in 97, Joe Torrey would not have been there. Mariano Rivera would have been traded. There would not have been that 98 team that became so special. Uh, and, and that's what I think I take more pride in anything about that 96 team was we are the one that laid the groundwork for that 98 team to get a chance. Right. Because I remember G. Michael telling me the story that when, when they lost in 97, George came into his office and said, that's it. Get rid of Tori, get rid of Mariana. We're done. We're <laughs> going to start over. Uh, and G. Michael saying, hey, George, relax, relax. We won the World Series last year. And Gene said, by reminding him that, he said, I'll give you 98. And if we don't win, everybody's gone. And sure enough, they went off to have that magical season in 98. And, you know, I feel kind of responsible for that, too, because I was on the Padres in 98, and we actually lost to the Yankees in 98. So uh, by losing to the Yankees in 98 and then winning that World Series, they kept that team together, and they went on to have that dynasty. And I was fortunate enough to get traded back in 99, be part of that so uh yeah very very cool be part of those two big teams yeah oh yeah oh yeah and let me ask you you know so you what was that when you were moving around you know so after you played for the yankees uh like you said you moved around um you know a little bit what was that transition like did you i mean i'm assuming you had to you know probably move to you know uh the city you were playing in how'd you find all those transitions within that period of time was that hectic? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was a little bit difficult. I mean, what, it, the move to Anaheim, when I got traded after the 96 season was over with, uh, you know, everybody was like, oh, they were so mad at the Yankees for the trade in me. And I'm like, wait a minute. No, no, no. I asked for the trade. You know, I went to George at the end of the season with my agent and said, listen, my agent was George's, one of George's best friends. And mm. my agent went to him and said, listen, if you're not going to give, if they're not going to give Jimmy the opportunity to play every day, I think he's earned the right to, to explore opportunities. And George said, absolutely. And he went to George, I mean, he went to Joe Latore and, and, that, and Cashman and said, is Lairitz going to be playing any more than he did last year? And they said, they were honest and they said, listen, we don't think so. We got Posada coming up. Uh, you know, Girardi, we're going to re-sign Girardi. Hmm. And so, yeah, he'll probably be kind of the same position he was in last year. He'll still catch Pettit, but other than that, you know, it'll be similar. And we, he told my agents, go ahead, and if you get an opportunity where Jimmy can go play every day, we'll make it happen. And sure enough, my agents got to deal with the Anaheim Angels 
and I got my first three-year contract. I became the starting catcher for the Angels. Uh, and just, you know, as luck would, un- unluck would have it, uh, you know, we're having a great season with the Angels. I'm, you know, I've got 11 home runs, 60 yard, 50 RBIs, doing catching every day, doing a great job. And then all of a sudden, Mark Langston and Chuck Finley get hurt in the same week. <laughs> and, and we have no pitching with the Angels. And at that time, Todd Green was a catcher in their minor leagues, and he was touted as the next Johnny Bench. Huh. And, and so they decided to trade me to Texas and for Kenny Hill, which was their number one starter. Right. And right, right. Uh, I get a phone call in the hotel in Cleveland from Tim Mead, who was the, the uh, traveling secretary for the, or the PR guy for the, the Angels. And Tim calls me up and says, hey, listen, I got some news. And I don't know if you're going to be completely happy, but we've traded you to the Texas Rangers. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. Hmm. I go, now, Tim, it's my first chance to play every day. First chance that, you know, I'm, I'm doing well. Right. I'm, I'm second to Pudge in every category defensively. Why are you doing this? And he said, well, you're going to Texas. And I said, well, yeah, but Pudge is there. He said, no, 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 no. There's a, there's a second part of the deal where once you're traded to Texas, they're going to trade Pudge to the New York Yankees for Jorge Posada, and I think it was Phil Hughes or – Jensen or somebody. There was there was another pitcher that was involved, and Pudge is going to New York, so you'll be the starting catcher with Posada in Texas, and you'll groom Posada in Texas. And I was like, okay, hmm. that's not so bad. Yeah, yeah, not so bad. So they make the trade on July 29th. I get on the plane on the 30th. I'm flying to Texas. I land in Texas, and the clubhouse guy picks me up and takes me to the clubhouse and says, "Oh, by the way, did you hear the good news?" And I said, "What's that?" He said, Pudge went in last night and signed a contract with the Rangers for five more years. Huh. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. So I get, I get to the ballpark. I walk in with Johnny Oates, and Johnny Oates calls me and says, listen, I am so sorry. We thought for sure Pudge was not going to resign. When he found out you got signed and that we were going to get rid of him, he came in and asked for a five-year deal, and he agreed to it without his agent. And we, we got the deal done. I'll get you some time at DH. I'll get you some time catching. I mean, uh, at first base, because Will Clark is hurt. And but I just, you're not going to be catching. And I was so upset and so angry. Uh, finished out the season with the Rangers, and then you know, in the off season, asked for a trade, and that's when I got traded to the Boston Red Sox. <laughs> so I started the '98 season with the Red Sox, and at that time, Jason Veritek was just up and coming with them and they had a pitching coach named uh joe kerrigan and joe wanted to call every pitch he wanted (laughs) to be like a college coach and and i was like no i played in the big leagues for seven years i was a starting catcher last year my you know my stats my my game calling was second to pudge and everything you know you and i can talk about this we have pre-game meetings but you can't be calling every pitch that's like high school (laughs) And he said, no, that's what I want to do. And Jimmy Williams was the manager of the Red Sox, and he gave him that, that, that you know, position. And so we, we butted heads, and sure enough, I didn't catch one game from April till June in 98. And I went into Jimmy Williams' office after about 120 at-bats. I had eight home runs, but I was only DHing against left-handers. And I was not happy with that role. And I went in, and I asked for a trade. 
because I was in the middle of a multi-year contract, mm. and they made the trade for me to the San Diego Padres, and I joined the Padres June in June of of, of, of uh, '98, and of course the Padres. We went on to have that run that we did, winning the division, and then of course going to the playoffs. I hit all the home runs against the Astros, one more against the Braves, and then we get to the World Series against the Yankees, and of course, you know. San Diego at that time was trying to get approval for the new stadium for Petco. And because our fans were so excited that we got to the World Series, they approved the new stadium. We go on to get swept by the Yankees in the World Series. And then Petco, I mean, Petco Park gets the approval in November. And then the Padres have a fire sale and they trade everybody off and start, you know, starting new. And I get traded back to the New York Yankees in 99, and we go on to win the World Series in 99. I get get one at bat during the World Series, and that was the home run that I hit in Game 4, which becomes the last home run of the century. Right. And uh, it was was a pretty special moment because when I got traded back to the Yankees that year, I just broke my hand, and I couldn't even hit the ball out in batting practice. And Chuck Knobloch and O'Neill and all those guys were giving me a hard time, you know, that, that I couldn't hit a ball out. And I told them, guys, you know me, I'll wait till a special moment and I'll hit a home run. So when I hit that home run in the 99 World Series in game four, you can see when I come around the bases and I come in the dugout, Paul O'Neill looks at me and goes, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> and we shared that moment together. It was pretty cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah, man, that, that, sound, that, that, was, that sounds like a – that was a magical time, and that just sounds like you know to be a part of it had to be, have been like you know just surreal, absolutely surreal. Well, you, know, you got to remember, as a kid growing up in Cincinnati, Ohio, with the big red machine, and you know, those were some of my memories. With you know, I was a bad boy for some of those games during spring training with my good friend Tommy Brenneman, and um, you know I got to know those guys. And you know, Pete Rose is uh, an idol of mine growing up, and uh-huh. he was the reason why I think he instilled to me as a young kid some advice that, you know, never treat one at bat different than another. Always look at it as your last at bat, and therefore you'll never get caught up in the pressure of the at bat. And I think that's why I was able to come through in such big moments time and time again, not just once, but many times. And I think that advice carried me as a young kid, and it was the reason why I was able to succeed in those situations. And to be a kid never drafted, to playing on those early Yankee teams that were terrible, <laughs> to get to the point where you hit a you have a home run that is considered in history as one of the top ten moments in Yankee history. Yeah. Uh, to be a part of that was something so special um, that you know what you can I couldn't ask for more from a, even though I wanted to play every day and never got that opportunity. The moments that I had during my time with the Yankees was uh, was so special. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Um, and essentially, um, so, you, and then I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, what influenced your batting style? You had a u- unique batting style at the time. And I, I think you had in the past said, um, uh, former Yankee Mickey Rivers helped you kind of mold, the your style. Is that true? Or well, no, when I got from Mickey Rivers was the bat twirl. Okay. Okay. So, so yeah. So, twir- so throwing the bat between each pitch, that was that's what I got from Mickey Rivers. As far as the batting stance goes, I used to bat like Pete Rose. I used to be lightly leaning back on my back leg and hitting a lot like Pete. 
And my senior year in high school, four days before the draft, I broke my leg playing tennis. And the team that was drafting me during that time was the Atlanta Braves. And they came, they called my father four days before the draft, before I broke my ankle and said, we want to make your kid a pick. And is he willing to sign or does he want to go to college? And my dad said, make him an offer and we'll see. And I went out that next day and played tennis. My dad did not know it. I did not know the Braves had called my dad and ended up fracturing a, a, a bone in my, my foot. And I had a, came home with an air cast on. And my dad said, I can't believe this just happened. I said, what's wrong? He said, the Atlanta Braves called me yesterday. And they're, they're calling me today to find out if you're willing to sign or not. You and I were supposed to discuss this. Now I've got to tell them you got a broken leg. So sure enough, the Braves called back, and my dad explained the injury. He said, I'm only going to be out three weeks, then I'll be back playing on the summer team that I played on with Barry Larkin. Um, and Barry was supposed to be the number one pick that year in the draft out of mm. Cincinnati. I was supposed to be the number two. And sure enough, they said, well, we're going to pass on him, but we'll come back and we'll look at him at the end of the summer, and if he's healthy, maybe we'll sign him as a free agent. Well, I came back at the end of the summer. I was playing. I was doing well, but I couldn't catch. I still couldn't squat on the foot, but I was playing the outfield, third base, other positions, and they saw me play in this tournament. I hit the ball great. I ran good, and they came to my dad and said, okay, we want to sign, and what would it take? And my dad said, 10 grand. And the scout, a guy named Hep Cronin was a scout for the Braves, came back to my dad a day later and said, they only approved us for 5000 my, huh. dad, my dad said, well, screw, screw that. He's going to college. Huh. So I, I went to a junior college in Georgia for two years. Never got drafted. Went to Kentucky for a year. Never got drafted. Couldn't figure out the reason why. And I hadn't been catching. I'd been playing the outfield and third base. I went out and played in the Jayhawk League in Hayes, Kansas, which is a collegiate league. And I told the coach out there that I wanted to start catching again. And I was catching. And when I was catching, one of the Yankee scouts, came to me after a tournament in August and said, what are you doing catching? I said, I can catch. And he said, well, not according to your college report <laughs> that he got from my college coach. And it said that I couldn't catch. And he said, I just watched you catch three games. You look pretty good. Would you be willing to sign? I called my dad up and said, dad, fly out to Kansas. I need you. He came out the next day. We sat down with the scouts. It was between the New York Yankees and the Kansas City Royals. They both offered me $8,000 cash, but because the New York Yankees offered me paying for my college education, if I wanted to finish it, they would pay for it. We signed with the New York Yankees. Wow. Look at that. And, and that's how it got started. Now, to go back to your question about my batting stance, I'm sorry, I, I got it got carried away there. That's all right. But my batting stance was developed because when those scouts told my dad that they would sign me at the end of the summer, I went and had a cast put on my foot, which is my left leg, so I can continue to take batting practice and not miss any time. And I took batting practice with a cast on my left leg, and I couldn't bend it, and I couldn't put pressure on it. And that's where the stiff leg started from. Mm, okay. So I always used to tell parents used to tell me the same thing. Can you teach my kids to hit like you? And I said, well, if you want to break your kid's foot, then I can do that. <laughs> 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 but that's how it, that's how that developed. Oh, wow, um, wow, man, that that sounds like a 
that's incredible. Um, yeah. You know? And crazy story, yeah. Crazy. I mean, just crazy. And I guess, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, I wanted to ask you about the the memoir you wrote. You know, the Catching Heat, the Jim Leridge story. Um, yep. You know, what motivated you to write that? What? Um... Actually, actually, yeah. It, it, the book started off in 2007. Um, mm. in, in November of 2007, I was in talks with Harper Collins um, to take the rights. A guy named Burton Rock, who wrote Paul O'Neill's book and Jack Hudson's book and a few other books. Him and I had been working since 2005 together on a book called The King and Dad. And the basis of the books was, um, you know, being a, a kid from Cincinnati, uh, growing up, never being drafted, making it in the big city, the big, you know, New York, having a nickname, the King, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and all this stuff happening. And then in 2004, uh, when I was faced with the decision to, uh, I had just taken custody of my two-year-old, four, seven-year-old and nine-year-old boys. Because my ex-wife had had some drug problems and some major uh, mental issues going on, mm. I had just taken custody of the boys. And the judge in Florida, the family court judge in Florida, when I came up to him and said, "Your Honor, I have an opportunity to go back to the Padres for a million dollars to go back and play baseball and finish my career and be able to support my family," the judge in Florida told me that if I went back to play baseball, that I would be I would give up custody of my kids. And they would go back living into a house that was drug infested, and you know who knows what oh could have happened to a two, seven, and nine year old. And I decided to quit the game of baseball and to stay home and be the best teammate of all. And that was Dad. And that's why the, the name of the book was called The King and Dad. And it was all, it had a lot to do with my father making decisions when he worked for IBM to not take certain job promotions because he didn't want to disrupt my brother, my sister, and I, and move us from Cincinnati where we were already going to high school and, you know, and, and, and playing sports that he didn't want to disrupt the family. And it was supposed to come out in Father's Day of 2008 in June. And right before HarperCollins decided to sign me, I had a car accident in Florida, which was on my birthday on December 27, 2007. Mm. Where I was drink, where I was drinking and driving, and the other driver was also drinking and driving, and it became a huge uh, case because the other driver was not seatbelted, went through a red light, uh, a bunch of different circumstances that, um, you know, that had happened. That she was unfortunately she passed away uh. in the accident, and the state attorney who had the case, instead of knowing all the evidence, pointed to the that the accident was not my fault and that they did have me drinking and driving, that she would try to use my case to promote her career uh, to become a judge. That she would, that, <laughs> yeah, that she was, she was going to pursue this no matter the circumstances with the depositions and all the evidence proved that it was not my fault, that we had to wait three years for the trial to take place, for that, all that evidence and everything to be presented for me to be able to be cleared of all those charges. Uh, and to be able to get a DUI, first-time offense, and that I should have never been drinking and driving, but the accident and all that other stuff that happened during those three years was not was something that was orchestrated by the state of Florida hmm. to try to uh, have this woman become the judge that she wanted to become. And unfortunately for me, 
as time went on, all the truth came out, all the evidence came out, and I was acquitted of the, the, the serious offense of DUI manslaughter, but not the DUI because I admitted to drinking and driving. Uh, and what happened was during that three years, uh, a woman had heard me telling the story, and she worked for this company called HCI Books, which were the chicken soup books. Huh. And she heard my story telling it to kids about the dangers of drinking and driving and what never giving up, never taking right. the easy way out to wait. You know, if you believed you had the truth on your side, don't take the easy way out. And that's what I was doing. She came to me and said, would you like to write a book? And I said, well, funny you should ask. Here's 108 <laughs> pages. I've already got it started. <laughs> and we read those 108 pages. And she said, no matter what happens, and she read the evidence and she read everything else about the trial. And she said, once you're cleared, once you're done, we, we want this book. Wow. And she said, Can, do you know anybody that you want to finish this book for you? Because Burton Rocks had already, already moved on to other things. And I said, yes, I, I have a very good friend named Jeff, Jeffrey Lyons, who is a movie critic. And mm -hmm. him and his brother have written a couple books. Jeffrey Lyons. That sounds familiar. I think I've... Yeah. He's a very, very famous movie critic. Yeah. Uh, and so I called Jeffrey up and he said, Jimmy, you were a former Red Sox and I'm the biggest Red Sox fan in the world. I will be honored to write your book. <laughs> <laughs> wow, look at that. Yeah, so him and his brother wrote the book. My, my, my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, she was, a, a, she, she was my ghostwriter also. She put the, the guts of the book together. Uh, and, and gave it the spiritual side of it, and uh, we wrote the, we wrote the book for you know during those three years, and as soon as I was acquitted of, of the DUI manslaughter, and and then we were able to move forward with everything, uh, we wrote the book. And Doug Lyons, Jeffrey's brother, mm. changed title from the King and Dad to Catching Heat because we included the last three chapters about all of the all of the things the state was doing, everything that was done by the state of Florida and everything that I went through during that three years waiting for trial and not taking the easy way out by taking a plea. And some of the things that had happened to me during that time, my rebirth with, with, with God through a book called The Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, who's the pastor of my church now here in California. Wow. Uh, it, it, it detailed all of that stuff up to 2011 when I, after the trial was over with, I made the move to California to to continue the relationship with my now wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, uh, and also continue my relationship with Saddleback Church, which is Rick Warren's church out here in California. So yeah, so when the trial was over with, you know, the judge gave me an opportunity to go wherever I wanted to go uh, because of the purpose of life, because of my relationship with my, at that time, girlfriend. And, you know, we met each other because of the purpose of life. When I was in New York, I met her and said that I, you know, she asked me what I was going through and I told her and she's like, oh my God, how do you get through this? And I said, I read this book called The Purpose Driven Life by this pastor named Rick Warren. And she looked at me and she said, you're kidding me. That's the pastor of my church. <laughs> I go to back. And so she stayed with me through the entire trial because she had read the evidence. She knew that I was not guilty of what they were accusing me of. And she stayed with me through that. And when the trial was over with, I went to the judge and the judge said, listen, I normally don't let you, you know, because I got a DUI, first time offense, and probation for one year. And he said, I normally don't let people leave the state because of your circumstances, because you live in the neighborhood with that state attorney. 
I will give you an opportunity to go wherever you want to go. And the phone call, let me know that you're doing okay. Because you should, this should have never went to trial. He agreed a hundred percent. And so I called up Michelle and said, listen, you know, we've gotten close over these two years and I think we have something here and I can bring the boys with me and we can live separately for a few years. And I would really like to come out and be part of the church out there, saddleback and be part of, you know, that and, and, and start our life, you know, through Christ together. And uh, what do you think? And she said, absolutely. Let's see, let's see where this goes. So we, I picked up in 2011 from Fort Lauderdale and moved the three boys and I to, to California. And for the last seven or nine years, we've been, we've been out here building a life together through the church, mm. through our, our beliefs and through everything that we've gone through. And listen, we've had trials and tribulations throughout all this, right. but we know through our faith and through what we've done, that God will get us through this as long as we keep our faith. And that's exactly what I did through the trial. It's exactly what I've done throughout my baseball career. It's pretty much everything that I had, I had been doing, but I hadn't been fully committed to God. And strangely enough, the accident is what really, really made me fully commit to knowing that, you know, believing that God, Pastor Rick Warren said a prayer over me in 2009 that, said, see your trial to the end. Do not take the easy way out. Hmm. And that stuck with me because three months before trial, when there was an opportunity for me to take a plea, my, my, my attorney said, you know, uh, all the evidence about the other driver being drunk, being no lights, no seatbelt, right, no, everything right. else was going to be thrown out that you, the jury was not going to hear any of that. And that he didn't think we had a ch- chance to win if that was, going to happen, that I should take this plea, and I said, absolutely not, that I want to see it to the end, I, you know, I've had a good authority to see it to the end, and that's what we did, and sure enough, after 17 days of trial, the truth came out, and I was acquitted, and I was just charged with the DUI, which is what I was willing to take from day one, uh, because I admitted to drinking and driving, mm-hmm. um, but it was one of those situations where, you know, I made the move to California, and since then, God has blessed us with a very good life of helping other people, giving back, and uh, just making sure that we appreciate what God gives us and right. that we share it with others as much as we can. And I have an obligation to make sure that I pass on the knowledge and the mistakes that I've made that can help other people not make the same mistakes. And it's so important not to be afraid to share that, number one, through God, but also through the, the the experiences that we go through in our life. It's true. It's true. You know, we can we can certainly te- you know help others, even though you know we've found ourselves in 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 a, in a certain circumstance. And um, yeah. you know, it's it that's 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 really I got to say that's really you know that's really humble of you to to just you know own that and you know that that's part of who you are. But you know that that shouldn't define you. And um, you know, it sounds like you've you've taken every step to kind of um, do what you can to kind of redeem yourself, I guess, for that. Exactly. And, and exactly. you know, it was a mistake. Yep. And you know, listen, this it happens to many. <laughs> you know, these are, it happens thousands of times a year. So, but um, but yeah, but but so 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 now yep. so now you found life out in California. So yeah, you know what? It's, it's, despite the politics and. Uh, 
<laughs> and the <laughs> and the taxes, uh, California lights as far as is, is pretty good. And of course, my wife is a fourth generation Orange County girl, so she was not going to leave her family and all <laughs> And, yeah. and so, you know, for me, it was an, an opportunity to have a fresh start out here uh, and the boys to have a fresh start, you know, uh, away from their mother with that, you know, they were, they were, who was having all the issues. And, mm. and it's turned out very well for all of us. And like I said, we've been very blessed and we continue to do our, our weekly, you know, our, our work with the church. We're involved with a charity out here called the Teen Project, which helps um, sexually trafficked women. Get get you know, wow. have have shelter and uh, the opportunity to become drug free and to to get away from that lifestyle and to have an opportunity to find work and find a job and start a second having that second chance to start a new life and it's called the Team Project and we've been a part of that and of course all the charity and foundation work that I do in New York when COVID is finally gone and I'm able to to travel again and be back in New York. Right, 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 and um. And so um, if you don't mind me asking, I mean, you know, like, so uh, it's kind of veer off a little bit. Um, California, how is it right now with all the crackdowns? I mean, it seems. Well, yeah, you, know, you know what it is? We, we're not big fans of our governor. Uh, <laughs> Sounds he, like nobody is. is. Sounds like nobody is. Well, you know what it is? It's hard to believe people that say, that come out on TV and say how desperate our situation is and how horrible it is to be gathering with people to not wear a mask, to not do all these things. And then a week later, he's seen in a very posh restaurant in Napa with no mask with 25 people at a dinner party. That's right. Where, you know, and, and then our, our speaker of the house, who is from San Francisco, who said that all these salons and all these things should be shut down because they're dangerous and she gets caught. That's right. That's it. That's... It, it's one of those things that you you kind of just question the authority of these people saying, do they, do they really believe it's that dangerous or is this something they're doing to scare us to, so that they can shut certain things down and the big businesses continue to thrive, but the small businesses are going to go under, uh, yeah. you know, what, what's going on. So there's a, there's a lot of things that are going on that, you know, we don't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, you know, we do, respect the fact that this is a serious thing and there are people that are losing their lives over this at the same time losing their lives over the pneumonia losing their lives over the flu losing their lives over different other things that are causing death also right that we we just have to figure out that how do we respect those people and yet those of us who are not affected by it that are in good health that we may get symptoms of a flu or certain things that go along with the flu, different types of flu. Um, how do we continue our lives to be able to continue to put food on the table for our families and to be able to feed our families and, and then help these small businesses that really need our help. And so I think that's, that's kind of what we struggle with here in California with, with some of these lockdowns that we figure right. there's, there's somewhat necessity in certain parts of California, mm-hmm. but not all, not all of California. Do you ever see, do you, do you ever see, see yourself leaving because of it? Uh, have you had any serious talks? I mean, if you don't mind me asking. No, no. Listen, we'll, we'll see what happens over the next few years. And, yeah. you know, we, we have a daughter that finishes high school in two more years and then we'll be empty nesters. Then we'll have an idea of do we, you know, do we want to be here or do we want to go 
somewhere. And we, like I said, my wife has a lot of friends, and you know, she grew up here. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't mean that we won't have a vacation house somewhere else uh, and spend five, six months out of the year somewhere else. But uh, I think we'll always have a footprint here in California. Nice, nice. Oh, okay. Well, well, Jim, thank you, man. Thank you. This has been uh, quite an honor to speak with you, I got to say. Well, I appreciate it. And like I said, we look forward to hopefully with this baseball season coming up that we'll be back to normal. And the Yankees look poised to, uh, to have a pretty good team this year. And they've, they've, you know, they got an opportunity, hopefully, to make one or two more signings. Hopefully they, hopefully they, they quit dropping the ball with DJ and get this guy signed. Yeah. Uh, and that they can have another good season this year. Well, Jim, thank you, man. Thank you. This has been uh, quite an honor to speak with you, I got to say. Well, I appreciate it. And like I said, we look forward to hopefully with this baseball season coming up that we'll be back to normal. And the Yankees look poised to, uh, to have a pretty good team this year. And they've, they've, you know, they got an opportunity, hopefully, to make one or two more signings. Hopefully, they, hopefully they, they quit dropping the ball with DJ and get this guy signed. Yeah. Uh, and that they can have another good season this year. There was one thing I did want to ask you. I guess if yeah. I could, what what do you what do you take what do, what do you think of uh, what Jeter's doing with the uh, with the Marlins? They the Marlins, bro. They were they've been a laughing stock. I mean, they made this uh, they made a historic move with the manager being the first female. Um, as far as the, as far as the GM, yep. Yeah, the GM, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I mean, so like, like, yeah, Kim yeah. Is, Kim is, Kim has been around the Yankee organization for years. She was very personal friends with Joe Torrey, and Joe Torrey brought her over to Major League Baseball. So Derek has been familiar with Kim throughout, you know, throughout his whole his whole career and after career. Um, and Kim is, and, and I know Kim very well too. She is one of the most intelligent baseball people out there, and I think it was a great move by Derek to bring her aboard to to start that transition as far as that there are women in sports that, mm. you know, that, that can, that can be knowledgeable and be, and be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, Derek's plan uh, was, you know, when he took over, people were like, Oh, you know, you're doing this, you're doing that. You're yeah. running that Marlon. Yeah, He's like, listen, we got a five, 10 year plan here. And I think COVID the 60 game schedule helped the Marlins. I think if we would have played 162, I think some of their weaknesses may have come forward, mm. but with the young with the young team like that, some of those weaknesses didn't come about the first sixty games, um, and they were able to have a pretty good season. But I think overall, you know, uh, you know, I, and you, I don't know Lewis if you know, but Don Mattingly is my favorite teammate of all. He is to me probably <laughs> the most respected person I have ever met for me in the game, and I love him to death. So to see him do as well as he did and be named manager of the year yeah. in the shortened season, it was great to see. Uh, oh. And I just hope they continue to do well. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to 
astray Right through the very heart of it New York, New York I want to wake up in a city that doesn't sleep And find I'm king of the hill Top of the heap These little town blues Are melting away I'll make a brand new start of it In old New York If I can It's up to you, New 